in the many, many years that I have been doing WGTD's morning show, uh, I count among the greatest pleasures the opportunities I've had uh, to speak with Wisconsin author Michael Perry. We've talked about several of his wonderful books, including uh, Population 485, Meeting Your Neighbors One Siren at a Time, uh, Visiting Tom, A Man, A Highway, and the Road uh, to Roughneck Grace, Coop, A Year of Poultry, Pigs, and Parenting, uh, and Truck, A Love Story. We have talked about all of these books, and, uh, and now we're going to be talking with Michael Perry about his latest book, which is called Montaigne in Barn Boots, an amateur ambles through philosophy. Uh, in this book, Michael Perry draws some intriguing uh, parallels and distinctions between himself and his life and that of uh, an essayist by the name of Michel de Montaigne, who uh, is well known to, uh, to those who explore such works as one of history's earliest and most important essayists. And uh, it is just fascinating, first of all, to, to get to know uh, the writing of a Montaigne born in the mid-16th century and to uh, experience the utter timelessness of so much of what he says or the acute rele- relevance of so much of what he says. Uh, and then, of course, to uh, experience that through the uh, the wonderful writing of of Michael Perry. Uh, the book is published by Harper Collins and uh, Michael Perry. It's a pleasure to welcome you back to the morning show. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you. So uh, I have to say that uh, this is actually a name I only had the vaguest acquaintance with. Uh, that is Michel de Montaigne uh, before reading your book, and I'm quite certain that I, at least on purpose, have never read anything by him before. So I'm grateful for the introduction uh, through your your wonderful book. Explain to our listeners your own introduction to this early essayist, how you first came across him and his writing. Well, I had a kidney stone. (laughs) (laughs) That's the short answer, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. I was a self-employed writer, and and this came at a time when I was... uh, not sure where the next mortgage payment was coming from, and I had a kidney stone, and I was self-insured and paying for everything out of my own pocket, and I was uh, in the ER and wondering how I was going to pay for this. And at the time, I was writing for a, a, a men's health magazine, and I thought, well, maybe I could write an essay about kidney stones and cover my deductible. And uh, <laughs> so I actually called my editor from the ER, Gurney, and got approval. And so I started taking notes about my kidney stone experience right up until the time about two weeks later when, as I put it in the book, I peed out the devil's own gobstopper. <laughs> and, um, but then, of course, I turned to do more formal research. And as part of that research, I started reading medical journal articles about renal calculi. And this name Montaigne kept coming up. Um, and so I started to look into it. And, and what it was was this 16th century nobleman who had written essays about being afflicted with kidney stones. And so when I finished the article, I started reading more and more of him. And uh, that was my official introduction. And uh, you now, over the course of of time, have not only read a, a great deal of his works directly, but you've also read a whole lot of books about him. Uh, help 
help us understand where he stands sort of in the history of essay writing and, and his importance, his significance? Well, it's widely agreed, although not completely agreed. Not, nobody agrees on everything anymore, but uh, it's pretty widely accepted that he invented the personal essay. And by that, I mean he would write about anything. He was very learned. He was a nobleman. He was born to great privilege, retired at the age of 38 to sit in his castle tower and meditate. And when he found out he wasn't very good at just thinking, he started scribbling down his thoughts to keep track of them. And that that, that then became the essays. Um, but he would write about anything. He, he would write about poetry. He would write about, he was always name-checking people like Lucretius and Seneca. But then he would turn right around and write an entire essay about his thumb. Uh, he wrote pieces about marriage. He wrote pieces about flatulence. He, he really would go just just about anywhere. And I think what's really intriguing is uh, the the mixture of of elements in his writing, including what seems to be uh, sort of a, a flavor of self deprecation and a little bit of a, a spirit of of hesitancy. Uh, that is, he writes with beautiful flow about, as you have already said, a wide array of, of different topics and subjects. And yet, in so much of what he writes, you tell us, uh, there is this air of, I'm not fully sure of this, but I think maybe this is true. Uh, uh, it's sort of a, 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 a spirit of humility that seems to uh, flavor a lot of, of what he writes. Uh, c- can you tell us more about that? Yes, I think I, I, somewhere in the book I said one of my uh, one of the reasons I love what he does is that he's he's willing to say I could be wrong. He's uh, always willing to offer a caveat, and as such, I dedicated the book to those who approach conversation with something less than a steamroller. And I think you know, I speaking personally at, at this particular juncture in our history, you have a great hunger to discuss something with someone and and perhaps not even be in agreement, but to attempt to learn something from the other person as opposed to whack them into submission. And uh, yes, he was was very much uh, certainly into some equivocation, but also just open to different ideas and open to the idea that he would lay out what he thought about something, um, but then say, but I, I could be wrong. And, and as I said, I, even in writing this book, I, I'm trying to operate uh, under the auspices of exploration rather than declaration. Hmm. Something else you say about him in terms of his relationship to you and the kind of writing that you have done for, for many, many years. Uh, you say at one point, because I want to live as a freelance writer and a freelance writer must produce copy, I offer things in print I would never offer in conversation. And then you quote uh, Montaigne is saying, amusing notion, many things that I would not want to tell anyone, I tell the public. And for my most secret knowledge and thoughts, I send my most faithful friends to a bookseller's shop. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about this really intriguing, what is it, maybe a paradox uh, in, in Montaigne and in your life as well? Yeah, I, so I'm, 
when Montaigne started out, and, and again, I am not an academic, and, and so many people have worked so hard and so long to unpack what he did, and I operate with respect, out of respect to them, and, and make sure to to nod to them in the book. But from my amateur perspective, I would say that he started out as a stoic, both little s and big s, and his goal was to learn how to die a noble death. And, and then he had a kidney stone, and he realized, well, some things physical just take away your nobility no matter how hard you try. And he was living in the age before Percocet and Tordal uh, medications. But he wanted to be this stoic person, and yet he would reveal all these things about himself, including his weaknesses. And I relate to that and that I'm a stoic Scandinavian. I don't want to talk about my feelings, and you can't make me. But I wound up in a profession where I have to write things and tell them if I'm going to pay for the kids' braces. And so at 3 a.m., you're under the duress of not finishing a piece and not knowing how you're going to get someone to publish what you write. And and the kids are asleep, and you're not sure how you're going to take care of them. And so you open up your chest to Ravain, and you share something you would never, ever share in person just because you need something to write about. And then what happens, as I describe in the book, is that you're at a very nice literary event signing books, and some gentleman comes up and asks, about a very personal condition you have. And I looked at the guy and just said, how do you know that? And, and, and he said, well, you wrote about it. And my response was, well, I shouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you did. <laughs> and we're glad and yet you did. I did. <laughs> For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with best-selling author Michael Perry, whose latest book is called Montaigne in Barn Boots, An Amateur Ambles Through Philosophy. Uh, this is his exploration of uh, the fascinating writings of 16th century essayist Michel uh, de Montaigne. Uh, it's so intriguing uh, the way in which uh, his writing seems to touch on so many themes that have been uh, important in your life and, and in your work, including something that, that I don't remember reading about in so many words in your previous books, and yet... In some ways, your life is all about this, uh, a term that we hear in the second chapter called roughnecked intersectionality. And uh, explain this term, and in particular, the way in which it is in so many respects kind of an embodiment uh, of, of who you are, uh, especially as a writer. Well, probably the best way to describe it is from the opening of the essay, which I described I say that uh, Michel de Montaigne died in uh, in uh, 1592 and, and was therefore unable to attend the Augusta Bean and Bacon Days Demolition Derby in 2013, which is a shame because my daughters and I attended and we had a wonderful time. <laughs> but then I go on to explain that two days prior to that, we also attended the Shakespeare Festival at a university in Minnesota. And from there, I just talk about the idea that um, we seem to want to put ourselves into these divided camps, that you're either into the demolition derby or you're into the Shakespeare plays. And, and Montaigne was the kind of guy who encourages me to, to live in both worlds, that uh, talk about trying to show my daughters that cultural consumption can be enjoyed on a sliding scale, including down there where it's greasy. And um, Montaigne really helped me explore that and uh, I don't even like the terms high culture and low culture because uh, you're, you're a 
applying a designation that perhaps you're not qualified to apply, and you're also impl- implying things. Um, but for the sake of shorthand, uh, I, I enjoy both worlds, and Montaigne really helped me explore that. Mm. Later in this chapter, you offer some really, I think, uh, intriguing observations about the world of the Internet in which we now all live and are with which we're trying to uh, contend. And I think your observations are, are absolutely uh, right on, 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 on target. Uh, you say at one point the Internet and social media in particular is the ultimate intersectionality catalyst. Voices previously unheard are amplified. And later in that same paragraph, you say, we find ourselves interwoven in, in unexpected ways. You can't hide like you used to. Uh, I, I really appreciate the way in which you uh, are honest about the, 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 the issues of the Internet and social media that in some ways tend to stoke the passions that tend to divide us, and yet you clearly also see the potential there in terms of the way in which we can come to understand the way we are connected with each other, even with people who, at a glance, seem to be utterly different from us. Can you say more about that? Yes, I certainly go to great lengths to make it clear that I understand the horrific cesspool of commentary that is out there, and certainly what it is like, for instance, to be a woman on the Internet and say something. I talk about a sociologist that I've come to know through the Internet and, and the abuse that she endures for making statements and, uh, and for sharing her research. And yet what I cherish about her is that here is a, an academic sharing research on Twitter in such a way that a knucklehead like me stumbles across it, and it changes my thinking. And, and so I'm trying to explore that idea that while there's, there's great horror out there on the Internet, and I don't in any way mean to minimize that, on the other hand, it has allowed a guy like me writing in a little room over a garage in rural Wisconsin to strike up a dialogue with a Cuban-American writer and living in Brooklyn and then taught me some things that I think I needed to learn. And, uh, and it has put me in dialogue with, as I said, a, a, a woman who's a sociologist at a university I've never attended, and, and yet I, I can learn uh, from her, and I can also vicariously experience what her life when filtered properly, I think, hope, that social media does have some power to generate empathy. Hmm. And I love how you talk about how uh, so often in these kind of arenas, such as in social media, there is this real tendency for most of us to be, in your words, ferociously impatient. And there is this hunger to respond immediately and in the the clearest of terms. And you say, I would so much rather ask questions and not be assigned a side. Uh, you really appreciate uh, each and every opportunity that you have to engage uh, with people who, who see the world differently than, than you do. Uh, you want to experience uh, what somebody calls the tension 
of difference. And again, this is intriguing because in some respects, it's a little bit at odds with who you are in terms of the way you tend to interact with the people in your world, at least, you know, in, in spoken conversation. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I, I keep, matter of fact, even during this discussion that we're having, I'm enjoying the fact that uh, you're doing a great job of pronouncing the name of the, the gentleman in question properly, whereas I'm from Chippewa County, Wisconsin, and I, I say Montaigne, and um, I, I talk about that in the book, about how you should pronounce the name. And so I do find myself often in unexpected conversational situations, whether it's online or whether it's down at the seed mill. And, and in the end, I just keep coming back to the idea that Montaigne taught me that, well, maybe I can learn something from this conversation and, and I'm going to do my best. I don't mean to say that we can all just be, you know, at some point you do have to make a decision. At some point you do have to take a stand. But yes, uh, social media has sort of created this environment where you're expected in a split second to favorite something or like something or tear something down, whereas in real life, often things move more slowly than that or should. Hmm. I know that uh, probably uh, one chapter of the book that uh, I'm guessing has generated an exceptional amount of, of attention is the fourth chapter of the book titled Shame, in which, uh, among other things, you talk about sex. Uh, although it's interesting, you take uh, nine pages, pages 81 to page 90, to basically talk about talking about sex. Uh, you don't really start talking about it till page 91. And, uh, but it, it, it springs out of a, out of a sort of a deep seated reticence, uh, for you and, uh, and, uh, and for others in your family. And, uh, I wonder if you could just say a word about, uh, the extent to which Michel de Montaigne has written about this and, uh, how his attitudes, uh, reflect your own. Well, he was much less reticent than I. <laughs> he he wrote about it in great detail and in uh, many different facets of, of sex. He was happy to talk about impotence and performance, and, and uh, he, he saw it definitely as a source of great humor. Um, he, he was very good at making fun of men and how they swagger about, but in the end they were these uh, rather weak and delicate creatures. Um, he's scholars have noted that his attitudes about women and sex were interesting and that in, in some ways he was uh, classically male in his attitudes towards women. Um, but on the other hand, he, he was one of the first to say that not only did women enjoy sex, but they had a right to. And um, But as far as me, I was, yes, you're right, I, it's still a tough one for me, and in part just because my mom's still alive. And <laughs> I, I said in the book, I'm 51 years old, and I still care what my mom thinks, thank goodness. Mm. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, I kind of wish that I'd had someone around me like Montaigne a little earlier in my life. It might have saved not only me, but a few people around me a little bit of difficulty. <laughs> By the way, I, I also really appreciated, because it, it so resonated with, with me, uh, 
when it comes to, in general, bodily functions. You say, my circumspection in sexual matters was a full-on burlesque compared to my reticence regarding bodily functions. This is odd in that, as a farm boy, I spent my formative years standing, sometimes barefooted, in manure. And as a nurse, I dealt with every imaginable secretion and excretion in straightforward fashion. But lightly, socially, it just wasn't done, and the hangover continues. <laughs> this is funny because we're circling back in real time to something you already mentioned. I'm, I'm remembering some of the things I wrote in this book and, and going, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, and what's interesting in, in this chapter, uh, you know, as amusing as much of it is, the, the really secret... Uh, the, 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 the central matter is, is that of shame. And you say, I'm attempting to refine my understanding of shame, its power, and its paralysis. And you actually end up touching on, uh, among other things, the fact that you very, very consciously uh, have avoided alcohol all of your life. Uh, even though you live in a place and work side by side with all kinds of people where it's a regular presence in their life, but uh, this is important to you. Yeah, it started out as a, a religious thing, the way that I was raised, and uh, and then. But you know that doesn't preclude it for, for most folks. And in my teen years, I just I never started. And I think because I said I wasn't interested from an early age, I really didn't get pressured that much. Although where I came from, certainly uh, there was a lot of heavy and underage drinking happening. And then um, even after I left the church that I was in, I just didn't drink, wasn't on any big crusade. And then I think I wrote in the book about there was a time when I was dealing with some fairly severe depression where one day I decided I I just wanted to try drinking just so that I could have a day off from, from the worry and the concern. And while I was having that thought, I was walking upstairs to my little office where I rode in the house where I lived at the time. And when I stepped into that office, it was ankle deep in uh, candy and uh, ho-ho wrappers and empty coffee cups. And I hadn't been out of the house for about a week. And I thought, you know, I think you probably shouldn't start. <laughs> I also really appreciate the candor of the next chapter called Marriage, uh, in which you, you spell out... Uh, all kinds of reasons why, in your words, life with me uh, can be miserable. You eventually begin uh, exploring uh, the matter of your kind of emotional state and the fact that uh, there are there are things about you uh, emotionally and mentally that are in some respects, we might say, fragile and that you are prone to swings of, of mood that you're probably still trying to sort of sort out. And even as you talk about, for instance, the way in which sometimes you seem to sag into a state of, of depression, that you're very reluctant to uh, necessarily assign that term to yourself or, or, uh, or talk about it, not out of embarrassment, but, but I think for, for other reasons. Can you talk for a moment about this reality in your life and uh, the great care with which you... Uh, explore it and talk about it? Well, the reticence there comes from a couple of things. One is just that blue-collar stoicism that I spring from. The other is being surrounded by people who really are struggling with profound challenges 
whether they're economic, whether they're personal, and and so that when I am feeling depressed, I, I don't feel like I have really much cause to to complain about it when there are so many others suffering so much more. Um, on the other hand, I've also watched as this predisposition to keep things quiet and to tough it out has injured folks, and so that's why I opened up about it a little bit, and, and uh, I talk about my brother, the logger, who Nobody's tougher than he is, and but we both share some anxiety and depression issues, him to a much greater degree, and, and I just felt like that was my little contribution to saying, hey, these things are uh, there's something that we do need to examine, we do need to take them seriously, and we do need to, to talk about them, even if they do come at us in varying degrees. Right. I think that's one of the things I, I especially appreciate about uh, the way you talk about this, because for you it seems as though you live in a kind of a zone of 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 gray, and and it's maybe not always that we hear from those particular voices. Uh, we we tend to talk about depression and think about it in its most acute sense, and uh, and and there's probably many many more people. Who experience shades of depression the way that that you do? For instance, at one point you write, "I've never felt suicidal. I've had plenty of stretches where I wouldn't have minded if the bus hit me, but I've never gone looking for the bus." <laughs> I assume this is a privilege of chemistry because it is a damn sure isn't character. But I mean, the the main point there being that that uh, it's important for us to explore things like that, like what it feels to be mildly depressed or to be in a marriage that's been going for a while and you're just on the edge of wondering, is this something that needs to be refreshed? Uh, I mean, that's, that's, a, a, that's a common state, but we don't talk about it enough or explore it enough, and it seems like that's something you do so very, very well. Well, that's kind of you. and I think also there's a little bit of self-therapy happening there. That's tricky because when you're writing a memoir, as this is, you, uh, a writer named Darcy Frey told me one time, if you're going to use the pronoun I, it had better be transparent. And so if I'm going to write about myself, uh, I better do it in such a way that I hope that, that the reader can perhaps look through that and see something useful for themselves. Well, we certainly need more of that uh, in this world in which we live. And uh, uh, I trust that uh, anybody who reads your book will, uh, just by following your example, maybe live a little more thoughtfully and a little more uh, reflectively. I know I derive so much pleasure from reading your your, your newest book, Montaigne in Farm, Barn Boots, An Amateur Ambles Through Philosophy, published by HarperCollins, the author Michael Perry. Michael Perry, thank you so much for giving the world yet another fascinating and thought-provoking book, and thank you for being part of the morning show today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.